It's so good to see everybody. Nice to meet the, the new folks. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with our study today in the book of Luke as we study the life of Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Before we do that, let's go ahead and open up in, in a word of prayer and give the Lord thanks for our time. Uh, Father, we, we come to you thanking you so much for the many blessings that we have, um, the, the spiritual blessings as well as the physical blessings. Lord, we thank you for this food that was provided for us, the kind hands that made it. Please bless them. Um, take this food and bless it, our body so that we can uh, be used of you. Um, we thank you so much for the, the spiritual blessing that we have, that we are your family. We're your children. Uh, we, have, we trusted you as Lord and Savior. You've saved us. And Lord, it is our desire now to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And we know that it's through his word, through your word, uh, that that takes place. So Holy Spirit, be with us now in this time of study. Open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our lives to these truths. I pray that you will help us to receive these truths and believe these truths and give us the strength and the willingness to walk in these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, we started in verse four, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 1 the other day. Jesus went to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath day to eat bread, and they were watching him closely to see if he would break the Sabbath. So y'all remember in the past, <clears throat> we've talked about how there are both spiritual and physical applications to a lot of things in the Bible. Like they, they all, a lot of things have both a physical significance and a spiritual significance. Y'all remember how we talked about how Jesus healed blind people, right? So what did he physically do? He touched them. He, well, he gave them what? Sight. Sight. He physically healed their physical eyes so that they could physically see. But the Bible teaches us that God can also give us spiritual sight, that he can heal our spiritual blindness. What does that mean? Lost. Oh, we can see where we're, we're going wrong. Yeah, we can definitely be wrong. We can see things that unbelievers don't because of him. That's right. We have the mind of Christ. We can hear his word, and we understand it in a, in a more firm and, and sure way. But the reality is, is that all of us have blind spots. And when we ask Jesus to help us to see, we're asking him to open our eyes, not our physical eyes, because I think everybody in here can see, but he, we're asking him to open our spiritual eyes so that we can see things that are more significant. Um, we talked about how he healed people who couldn't hear. They were deaf. What would be the spiritual significance of opening someone's spiritual ears? They can hear the word. Good. Yeah. They can hear the word. That's exactly right. And <clears throat> what about a mute person, a person who can't speak? What would be the spiritual significance? Yeah, you'd be willing to share the word with other people, right? And have the words to share. Um, how about someone who was crippled, someone who couldn't walk? What would be the spiritual application to a crippled person who couldn't walk? They could get to church on Sunday. Yeah, they could get to church on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very true. Um, there's a word, y'all might have heard it before, it's called orthodoxy. Have y'all ever heard that, right? Or, orthodox. Right. right. And the orthodox means... Uh, the right words. What does it mean to say some uh, orthopraxy? It means the right practices, all right? So a church that is orthodox teaches the truth the right way, and a, a church that is orthopraxic is a church that uh, does the right things, right? They don't do like some of the people we heard you talking about earlier about these pastors that have gone rogue. And so orthopraxy means that you walk straight. Ortho meaning straight. Praxy meaning your practice. 
And so, in a spiritual sense, we all like, what does the Bible say? We all like sheep do what? Go astray. Go astray. And when God heals us, he can heal us so that we can walk what? Walk in his light. Walk the right path with the path of eternal life. And so, a lot of times when you're reading the Bible, there are both physical and spiritual implications to what we're reading. I want to really quickly emphasize, what do I mean when I say Sabbath? What does that word mean? The Sabbath day, Sabbath. What does that word mean? Rest. Rest. That's exactly right. So, um, I can tell you that I love Sunday afternoons because I physically practice the Sabbath. I go home, I eat a big fried chicken meal, and I lay down for about four hours and sleep. I get up when it, now it'll be dark when I get up, right? It'll be 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon. But I enjoy that. Why do I enjoy that so much? Yeah, I'm tired. I've, I've, I've worked hard all week, and I'm tired. I'm physically worn out. But what would be the spiritual Sabbath? What does it mean to say that I... To, what what do we call it when we rest spiritually? To rest in the Lord and not worry about the world. Good. To rest in Christ. And not only that, not to worry about the world, but how about this? Whose righteousness is it that is getting me to heaven? His. His. That's exactly right. Whose work is getting me to heaven? His. His. And so to say that I am spiritually observing the Sabbath means that I'm resting in what Christ has done instead of what I'm doing. And we can get very tired being religious, can't we? Mm-hmm. Our religion can become a uh, more of a physical exercise than a spiritual exercise. It's a job. Right? <laughs> um, this week at, at, at my church, we, we, uh, uh, did, we observed for the first time since I've been there, we observed the Lord's Supper. And I, I, so I preached on the Lord's Supper, and I said, you know, a lot of people, especially in Baptist churches, a lot of people only practice the uh, observe the Lord's table uh, twice a year. Uh, it's usually Easter and Christmas Eve or something. They'll have a Christmas Eve service and they'll pray. So in most Baptist churches, they only do the Lord's table uh, about twice a year. Uh, and and some churches like IPC, where y'all go, y'all do what? Well, uh, Grace. They, they on the morning uh, once a month, and right now they're doing it evenings twice. Right. And so there's di- different, right? Yeah, and if you go to the Catholic church, they do the mass every time, right? Uh, we won't go We won't go down that aisle. But again, when we think, so the old church that I just left, we, we practice it every week. And one of the things that I was preaching that sermon, I was warning people that you can become, it can become a ritual. It can become ritualistic where you're physically going through the motions, but you lose sight of the spiritual ramification. You lose sight of the spiritual oh, benefits. Right. But and, the but the pastors generally that I've seen always call you to reflect beforehand. Yeah. yeah. All, is there a sin that you need to yep. put in God's hands and, and, and do that? If it's just a you know, pass out cookies and a and a Little Kool-Aid. I mean, you know, hey, do that anyway. Well, you're you're right, and so I guess what I'm saying is this: we can get ritualistic in all of this stuff. That all of our religious stuff, we can get. It can just become a routine. Like I get up every morning, I read a Bible verse, and I say a prayer, and then I go to work. 
And then I go to Wednesday night prayer meeting and every Wednesday night I go to prayer meeting and every Sunday I go. And we can, if we allow the flesh to take over, it can just become ritual. It can just become something that loses its spiritual significance. Now, the physical things are important. Because they point us to the spiritual realities. But we need to understand as we're studying the life of Christ that there are a lot of times that he will be speaking about something spiritual and the people take it to mean he's talking about something physical. In John chapter 6, he told his disciples and he told all of those who were following him, he said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have no part with me. Right? And a lot of them went away. They thought he was talking about being a cannibal. And some people in some churches, some religions, we won't mention any names, Michael, believe that the bread and the wine physically become the body and the blood of Christ. They believe that they're observing John 6, and that's what he meant. He was talking about the mass when, when he did John 6. But the point being is this. The point I'm making is, is that a lot of times Jesus will be talking about a spiritual reality, but he's using physical things. And we need to be spiritually aware of these things. We need to allow His Holy Spirit to help us to discern what we need to know and what we're learning, right? So He's gone to this uh, uh, Pharisee's house. It's on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered, and there was a man. He was suffering from a terrible disease. And it said, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day or not? So he, he just blatantly throws a question out there to him. What is against the law on the Sabbath? Work. Work. And so the question he's really asking is, is this a work for me to heal somebody and make them better, physically better? One of the things that Jesus uses when he argues with the those that are contrary to him that say that he's breaking the Sabbath. Now, remember, if Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, what is he doing? He's breaking the law. And what do we call that when we break the law? He's sinning. So if he truly is breaking the Sabbath day, he's sinning. And we know that Jesus never sinned. So one of the arguments that Jesus said was that um, my father works and therefore I work. Well, what does he mean? Well, the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, the way the wind blows, the way the, sea, the tides flow, everything is in God's hands and God's control. And God's running that all the time, isn't he? And it never stops. And so what Jesus is saying is, my father's at work, so I work. But the work that he's doing is not physical labor. It's not. It's a spiritual gift. But also, the Sabbath day was given to us. Right. And, and, he, and so look what he says. He says, they kept silent. They wouldn't answer. Now, why would they not answer? When Jesus asked this question. They wanted to catch him. Right. But they were trying to catch him in a trap, but he's catching them, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He said, is it unlawful for me to heal somebody on the Sabbath day? And they, they're quiet. Have you ever called somebody in the wrong and you just ask them a question about it and they just don't say anything? They don't have any answer. Why? They don't have an answer. Yeah. Why do we have the Miranda rights? You have the right to anything that you say. Right? So why do people keep quiet? They don't want to be incriminated, you see? So he asked them, he said, he said, uh, is it lawful for me to heal on the Saturday? And they kept silent. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. Now then he said this. He said, which one of you will not have a son or an ox fall into a well 
And will you not immediately pull him out on Saturday? So if, if your son's out there, you know, Timmy fell in the well, Lassie's barking, uh, that kind of thing, and you go outside and your son's down in the well, are you going to say, son, you're going to have to wait till tomorrow to Sabbath. I can't lift you out of the well. And, it, and we laugh at that, but he's being serious. Well, Daddy, can you throw me a rope? Yeah, give me a rope. Let me calm myself out. Because he would definitely do work on the Sabbath, wouldn't he? He would get out of there. His desire would be to get out of there. And so, you know, we forget about the fact that when we're resting in church and spiritually observing the Sabbath on the church, at church, that there are policemen running around arresting folks. There's ambulance drivers running around and getting people to the hospital. There's doctors in the emergency rooms um, helping people to get better. Right? There's nurses all over the, over the place. That if he got called out for picking the heads a week yep. on a Sunday? No, no Jesus did. Oh, Jesus and his disciples were plucking, or his disciples, it said his disciples were plucking the, the corn. They were, they were getting it to eat. And so the point that Jesus is making is, is that the Sabbath is about resting in God and his work. And when our focus becomes what we're doing or what we're not doing, that in itself means that we're not resting. You can't go to the movies on Sunday, right? How dare you? How dare you participate in a sporting event on Sunday, right? Now, granted, I know people that go to participate in sporting events on Sunday. I know people that go to the movies on Sunday. I particularly don't do those things anymore because I have a personal conviction about those things. But you have to go to church on Sunday. You see? Well, the the reality is, is when I make it a have to instead of a want to. I've lost the spiritual significance right. of it. Catholics have to. <laughs> when well, I, you might be a Presbyterian here shortly. I know, I might be. Yeah. So the, the reality is, is that uh, if, if I'm focusing on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. Now, that's important. And it is important for us to focus on what we're doing and what we're not doing. Like if you don't, you will fall in the well and you'll be the one to have to pull out. We have to be focused. But the point is, is that when it comes to honoring God and worshiping God, if the focus becomes about me and what I'm doing instead of about him and what he's done, I've lost sight of the focus. It's about him, not me. I was just telling some people at my church uh, yesterday, we was at Bible study, and I said a lot of times we lose sight of the fact that when we go to worship God, we're there to worship him. And it's not about me, it's about him. And so many churches that you go to these days, the preachers in the pulpit are preaching about what you get. This is what you get. You know, instead of this is what he has done. The proclamation from the pulpit is Christ Jesus and him crucified. The proclamation from the pulpit is that Jesus is Lord and that we are to yield to his authority in our lives and that we're to die to sin and take up our crosses and follow him. Right? So what is the message from the pulpit? Die to self, live for Christ. And the more I make it about me, the less I'm making it about him. And so here he is, he's arguing with the most religious people of his day. They wore all the right clothes, they taught all the right talk. They've been to all the right schools. All the right schools, they had all the right degrees hanging on their office walls. These were the people. These were were the the religious uppity-ups. And Jesus is putting the putting the, the smackdown on them by simply asking them by simply asking them a question. Here, I'll give it to you. I'm sorry. You see how that works? 
So he said to them, which one of you will not have a son or an ox fall on the Sabbath day, and will you not immediately pull him out? And they could make no reply to this. And the truth of the matter is, is that when we're in the wrong, and we're confronted with God's truth, all we can say is what? I repent. I'm wrong. These people kept silent. The point would have been for them to repent and say, you're right, we should... It, it is definitely lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath. That's what they should have said, but what did they do? They kept silent. Because number one, they were trying to find him doing something wrong. They wanted to accuse him of breaking Moses' law. And, they, and not only that, none of them had ever had the power to heal anybody. They had never seen anything. They had wit- never witnessed anything like this. And so um, he, again, as, as put, put confronting the the religious leaders with their flaws and that is what the word of god does to me and you we talked about this when we were together last week remember on uh october 31st what holiday we celebrate (laughs) no we celebrate reformation day the day that martin luther nailed the 95 thesis to the church and remember what i said luther's goal was not to destroy the roman catholic church luther's goal was for the church to reform and get back to what the scripture said and his whole point was that the church instead of relying on the foundation of god's word alone was relying on the bible traditions and the pope to be their rule and authority and what he was saying was all three of those things are conflicting one another And he said, we need to let the Word of God be our foundation of truth. And what we've been seeing in the life of Jesus as he's been confronting these people with truth is that his truth is divisive. It's constantly bringing division. And we don't like that. We like harmony and we like peace, don't we? And the reality is is that these truths will, if if, if they're at work in your life, these truths will bring divisions within you you will be forced to recognize that there are things that you believe that are just not according to truth and you're uh, commanded to turn away from what you know is wrong and turn to what he says is right. That's what we're commanded to do. And so I used the example last time we were together. Y'all remember Jacob in the desert. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. And what happened when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord? He pulled his hip out of socket and the rest of Jacob's life he walked with a limp. And the point is, is that when you wrestle with the Word of God, it should change the way you walk. There should be a constant conforming to His truth in your life. Remember that way, won't you? I said we'll remember it that way. Yeah, it's it's a comp. It it should be the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are conforming us to the image of Christ. You should be able to look back on your life, not just yesterday, because you won't get a very good opinion of yourself then, but look back over the last 10 years, the last 12 years, the last 15 years, the last 20 years, and has there been a continual, gradual, continual growth in your Christian maturity, in your Christian spirituality, in your Christian understanding of His Word, of the way that you carry yourself? When people are seeing you, or are they saying, that is a Christ-like person? And that's what the Word of God does for us. So, again, he's confronting these religious leaders. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to give us a couple of parables. And we'll try to see if we can't get through these today. Let's look at this first parable. This is um, Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 15. It said, he begins speaking a parable to the invited guest, 
when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will have to proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all of those who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who is humbles himself will be exalted. All right. So let's let's take that chunk right there. Verse 7 11 and see what's going on. Remember, where's Jesus right now as he's telling this parable? No, he's at the Pharisee's house sitting around a table with a group of the religious uppity-ups. And what he notices is a bunch of people are spurring for the the best seat. They want to sit next to, you know, uh, uh, Friar Tuck or whoever it is that's the most important one in the the room, you see. They, They want to find the most important person and they want to associate themselves with them. And what Jesus is saying is, he say he gives them a parable. And what do we say a parable is? What's a parable, Lori? You remember our definition? It's an earthly, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus uses physical things to explain what? Spiritual reality. Just like we talked at the beginning of the lesson today. He's using physical illustrations to help us to understand spiritual eternal truths. And he said... He noticed how they were picking out these tables. He said, hey, when you're invited by someone, so why are all of these people here? And they invited him. Yeah, he, he was invited. Jesus was invited there, and so were all these other people. Well, they were probably right. invited there to watch them think they were going to uh, eviscerate uh, Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Will and no doubt. They, they probably invited him there as a trap. See if they it's a trap. Turn it's a trap. Over. Turn to their way. <laughs> well, and so how many of y'all ever been at church and then somebody said, hey, you'll come over to our house for supper after church today. You know, you've been invited over to their house. Yeah. Well, you don't just go and sit in the at the head of the table. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Why? Usually because that's the man of the house's place and you don't go sit right. in his chair. Like he's going to run you out of there. But look what he says. He uses this example of a wedding feast. Um, do not take the place of honor because you may sit there in that honored chair and then somebody who is really honored is going to come along and make you get up. And how embarrassing, and, and how embarrassing that is because by that time everybody else is seated and you're going to have to go find the worst seat in the house. See, you're going to be escorted out of the seat you thought you deserved and you're going to find the seat that you deserve by your actions. All right? So he says, uh, and again, we're talking about a wedding feast. Now, in the, the Bible... The wedding feast, he uses that example a lot. And not only that, we've seen him at weddings before, haven't we? Yeah. Right? When he turned water into wine, he was at a wedding feast. And not only that, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it tells us about a, a, a wedding feast between who? The bride and the groom. And who is the groom? Christ. Jesus. And who's the bride? Us. His people. That's exactly right. So we'll all have a place at the table. And I was talking about that at church the other night. I don't, you know, talking about spiritual realities and physical truths. Like, um, there may be a physical banquet of all of the, like a real banquet in heaven where Jesus is in the middle and everybody else is seated around the table. But, you know, that table is going to have to be pretty big. It's going to have to be bigger than like the continental U.S. United States for everybody that's saved to get, uh-huh. get around that table. But when Jesus uses pictures of banquets, when he uses pictures of weddings, he's emphasizing 
spiritual reality. Now, what is the reality of a banquet? What is the reality of, uh, of a feast? It's, it's a place where all of the invited come together. What is the uh, significance of the table? It's where family sits together and eats, right? And so he's saying when you get invited to this wedding, and immediately when we hear wedding, we can think about, oh, Jesus is the groom, and we are the bride. And there's going to be a giant feast for all of us, right? And when we take the Lord's Supper on Sundays, we can think of that that same feast. And he said, uh, could you imagine that? Could you imagine uh, y'all going to IPC next week and having communion and Lori going down there and getting her wine and her bread? Or, or they, they pass it out at y'all's church. But could you imagine her going in there and grabbing her own and then going up and sitting next to Terry on a chair up at, by the pulpit? No. Right? right? That's not no. your place, is it? Right? No. right? And what would happen? You would be escorted. I would be embarrassed. And you would be escorted back to the back of the church. Lord, get out. You don't belong up here. Right? <laughs> you see, and that's the point he's making. He's like, don't. Think of yourself better than others. Don't think of yourself like you're the spotlight. It's not about you. My hand is always first. I want to get to choose him, though. <laughs> <laughs> the first to be last and the last to be first. Yeah. And he said, so when you're invited, come. do that no more. He said, don't take that place of honor. Somebody along will come along more distinguished to you, and then the one who invited you is going to say, get up from there. Uh, and give that man uh, your place, and then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go in and recline uh, in the last place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he may say, friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. So what is it called when we don't, require the best seat in the house when we go and sit in the worst seat. Content. content. We're content. We're just happy to be at the feast. Right. I'm happy to be here. Yep. And humility. So what what is the what are those pictures of? Contentment and humility. Right? And guess what? Remember what did we say it mean what does Sabbat mean? Rest. Rest. But that is joy too. Sure. Joy comes from that. So think about that. The one who is resting in Christ is content at wherever he is. Whether he's at the best seat in the house or the worst seat in the house, he's content. And not only that, he's resting in the seat that Christ has given him. You see? He's been invited. He knows he's a part of the wedding feast. He's been invited. And he will be content to sit anywhere. I know that one day when we get to heaven, I do know that we will be rewarded. Like, we're going to receive rewards in heaven. But I think that a lot of things that we think we're going to get rewarded for are things we're actually going to get chided for. And a lot of things that we didn't think even were even significant or will be the things that we would get rewarded for. You know what I mean? And so uh, I, I wonder about people who are saying... You know, well, I'm going to have a, you know, here's going to be my mansion in heaven, and you're going to have that little cabin over there. Like, I'm going to have a big mansion. Like, And when we begin to start to strive for those rewards, I, I'm not sure how much good intent is in that. When we're striving after these eternal rewards, they're going to come. But it... I should be allowing Christ to work through me and not focusing on what I'm doing. I should be focusing on what Christ is doing. And so my work is not so that I can get rewarded. My work is because he's rewarded me. 
Do you see the difference in those two things? Like, think about the difference. So I just saw a funny picture yet the other day. It was a guy sitting out. He was sitting out on his front porch with his head down like this. Or, yeah, he was sitting on his front porch with his head down. And it said, um, me on my lunch break contemplating whether I'm going back <laughs> back to my job. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? How, how many of y'all have ever felt that before? Yeah. You're working like, I just do not want to go back to this today. Well, why do you go back? Because we need the money. Yeah, you got to get paid. You got to pay the bills. Yeah, bills to pay. But have you ever done something that you just love doing? Yep. And it, you would have paid to do it. Yep. Not, I'm going to do this so that I get paid. Like, you will literally, if it's something you love, you will literally pay to do it. Yep. All right? Well, think about that. <laughs> think about that in our comparison with our wall of Christ. Are we doing these things because we want to get paid? <clears throat> Or are we doing these things because we have been paid? We have been paid. It was paid in full. Yeah. Right? And now I serve not because I have to, but because I there's want to. There's a lot of jobs. Uh, not, not only just ministry, but there's a lot of jobs. People, people actually enjoy going. Sure. And doing it. And God has provided that for them. Sure. No doubt. And if we're content in Christ, we'll be at peace about what we're doing. Right. Like, we'll be content about this. It kind of puts us in a place where we are content with what we do. So, back to what we were talking about when it comes to dead orthodoxy or dead orthopraxy. When it comes to us just being ritualistic about our prayer life or being ritualistic about going to church on Sunday or being ritualistic about reading the Bible. What's happened is, in our heart, we've gotten an attitude that I have to do this. Like, this is what I do because I'm a Christian. This is what I can do. This is what I do because I can better myself as a Christian. And the focus is now on who? Me and what I'm doing instead of on him and what he's done. And so you will find that at times in your life when you're truly walking with Christ and truly doing things not because you have to but because his, his will is in you and your desire is to do those things that you find joy in those things. You find joy in your Bible study. You find joy in your prayers. You find joy in serving other people. But even for us as Christians, it can come to a point where it becomes a labor. Right? Like, like not, not a labor of love, but a labor of bondage almost. Like, I have to do this. Drudgery. Yes, a drudgery. And so... Uh, okay, we went down a rabbit hole. Let's get back to the wedding I feast. Did I, I did the rabbit hole today, Lord, not you. All right, so what does he say? What is the point that he's making? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but anyone who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, well, what does it mean to humble yourself? To not act like you're higher than anybody. Okay. Yeah, don't, don't look down your nose at people. Don't look down your nose Pray at people. Pray for them that have less than you. Okay. Obedience is definitely an expression of humility. Yeah. Don't have pride. Don't okay, a yeah, lack of pride. pride. Yeah. All right. Good. So, patience. What does it mean to to exalt oneself? Lift oneself up. Yeah. Pray. Lift oneself yeah, up. Look at me. Look yeah. at me. Look at me. Or, or in some cases, put other people down and talk bad about other people to make you feel better by serving. You look better in front of people than, than they do, and that's that's a horrible sin. Uh, or toot your own horn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. tooting your own horn. That's a good one, Mike. Uh, you know, you can often tell a lot about other people by just shutting up and listening to what they're yeah. saying. And not only that, but you know how Jesus says, take the splinter out of 
uh, your eye before you try to take the log out of your brother's eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Well, a lot of times when people are trying to correct you. Look at the other way around. Right? Take the log out of your own eye before you take the Well, it depends on if you're humbled or exalted. If you're exalting yourself, all you got is a splinter. And, he, and he's the one with the log. He's got the log. But a lot of times when people are critiquing you, when people are calling you out on things, a lot of times, <coughs> y'all have all heard the saying, it takes one to, to know one. <laughs> a lot of times when somebody is bringing up shortcomings in your life, they're so it, it's in them. people look over to this person right. rather than to look at you What they're doing that. is projecting. They're yeah, pointing pro- out things in their own life. Yeah, they're, they're projecting what's wrong in their yeah. life onto you. Onto you. And trying to fix you because as long as I'm fixing you, I don't have to fix me. <laughs> right? We're all, listen, we giggle and we laugh, but we're all very capable of that. It's so easy for like, You think you got problems with your trauma? Yeah. You know. but, but we are all very, very capable of critiquing others, like seeing what's yeah, wrong with like other people. Like Dave was saying, one up in somebody, their problems are bigger than theirs. Yeah. yeah. Than and that's theirs. a way to exalt yourself, isn't it? One up and How many of y'all have ever been to a prayer meeting where it's gossip central, where everybody's got oh, yeah. one, they, they one up you on who's sick? Yeah. Like, you know, well, my friend lost his leg. Well, my friend lost both his feet and, and a hand, you know. I have a, when we leave, if we could please, don't let me forget you. I was going to pray for Josh King, my cousin, my second cousin. He's been missing for 15 days. Okay. All right, we will pray for him. All right. So, think about that. He's saying, if you walk around trying to make yourself the center of attention, then God will humble you. Say again? But if you try to walk around lifting yourself up, making yourself the center of attention, then God will humble you. It's like you Let me ask a question here. So if we walk around making ourselves the center of our attention, God will humble us. God's going to humble us, right? right. <coughs> yes. Well, He's like, you do it or I will. But <laughs> right. what does he promise you that if you will humble yourself, that if you will humble yourself, he will lift you up. But again, when he lifts us up, it's not to put us on a pedestal. It's to show glorify him. Like there, Even in that. I hear so many people, oh, God has blessed me, and I got a new car and a new job and a new house and all this money in the bank and, and a, a, a model wife. Like, God has blessed me. Look what he's doing in my life. And the reality is, is that a lot of those things are probably not blessings from God, right? Now, a good job is a blessing, and a wife is a blessing, and, and money. But our ideas of what is good and edifying to us, are oftentimes things that worldly. exalt us and, and worldly instead of things that would keep us humble. You know? I don't know. My grandfather always used to tell me, he said, marry an ugly old girl, and then she, she'll appreciate you all your life. <laughs> and nobody, and she never run off and cheat on you. My granddad used to tell me that all the time. He'd say, he'd say marry an ugly girl, and then you ain't got to worry about her running off on you or somebody cheating on you and, and saying they appreciate you for all you are. You're an ugly woman. He used to tell me that all the time. Well, what's the point? What's the point I'm making in that is, is this. Like, you know, if I, if I got some beautiful wife, it's, that can be a trophy. They call them trophy wife, right? Well, what is that? Look what I got. See what I got? When in reality, if God blesses you with a wife, it should be something that humbles you. That God saw fit to give you a woman that can build you up and edify you. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Yeah. What's your smile about, I think? I'm just thinking about a coffee mug I bought. I still have it. It's this trophy husband on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so my I always, God. I always tell people Jess bought it for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If Jessica ever hears this, she's my humble oh, no, him. <laughs> yeah, she might humble him for that. Right. Uh, but, but think about that. He's given us a very significant thing, a, a, a rule to live by. Like this world, everything is about you. Yep, most people. I, I, I. <laughs> right? What letter did I start I'm with? Guilty. I'm guilty. I, and who's I, the biggest idol in your life? Me. You look at him in the mirror every morning. or <laughs> Right? And, and think about that. This world, the whole world system, the devil and your flesh, these are your three enemies. God says you got three enemies. It's the world around you, the devil, and the flesh. And a lot of times we give the devil credit for things that the flesh is doing, right? The devil don't need any help. We give him all the tools he needs. You see? And so you got the world, the flesh, and the devil. And think about when you go home and you watch an advertisement. What is it doing? It's appealing to you. Oh, if you use this product, you'll be beautiful. Oh, if you use this product, you'll be popular. Oh, if you use this product, you'll be like, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll look young. Right? Yeah, you'll look young. Right? And and, uh, and, and so we have these, these TV ads, these advertisements coming on every day, making it all about you. <laughs> and do you know what a television ad, the purpose of a television ad is? To make you covet. Covet. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Do not covet. Don't covet. Their neighbor's way or their ass. Uh, uh, yeah, or their, their ox or their, their donkey, right? Their ox or their donkey. And so, right, so in today's terms, don't uh, don't covet your neighbor's new car that they just come driving up in the driveway with. And then what do you do? You see the car advertising on the TV and say, oh, I need me one of the new Ford F-150. That's a very nice looking truck. But the point being is just that these ads... Make it you think it's about you. And they cause you to desire things that you do not have. And you might not think, I know that when they, those ads come on the, the computer screen, I click them off real fast, probably about 1.2 seconds, about how long it takes me to X out of an ad when they pop up on the screen on my computer. But the reality is that advertisements affect us every day. They're all over if you don't think they affect you, come shop in the grocery store that I work at and see how many people have grabbed something. When you put down this two for four, they'll grab two. You put it's two dollars, they get one. Two for four, oh, I'll get two. Yeah. You put a dollar ninety nine on there and they won't buy it. And they won't buy one. You see what I'm saying? They'll buy two and pay four dollars. Right. You put a dollar ninety nine on it, it's cheaper than two for four, and they won't even buy one. And I guarantee you that the whole, our whole store is set up to get people to want things. Like, that's what we're there for, okay. to drive people to buy things. And it's the same way with advertisement. It's the same way the world around you. And it's also the same way with those who exalt themselves. They, they want everything to be about them. They want you to see them and to notice them. And what does God say? Don't do that. Don't live like the world. Don't live like your flesh wants you to live. Don't live like the devil's trying to drive you to. Live in humility. Live in contentment. 
Live thankful that God loves you and he sent his son to die for you and to save you. Live in those things. Live in those moments and allow this world to pass you by. Because it's going to anyhow. And so he's given us a beautiful picture of what it's like to be a part of the family of God. To be around the table fellowshipping with him and trusting him and allowing him to give you your place. Allowing him to give you your hope and your joy. Allowing him to give you the, the definition of what true contentment and happiness looks like. And so here he is, he's in this room with this whole group of people, and he comes in and he starts delivering these truths to these people, and they're not hearing any of it. And the ones that are hearing it hate him for what he's saying because he's getting up in their business. He's getting up in, in, in their religion and in their way of life and in their tradition and what they believe and what they think. And his truth is coming in and it's starting to shake the world. And not only should that be that be not only should those truths be shaking the world around us, but it should be shaking us too. We should be shaken up in those truths. You don't think some of the Jews were converted after they heard it? Most definitely. Okay. Yeah, Nicodemus would be one, right? Uh, and well, he's got eleven disciples following around that were all converted from Judaism. That, that are believers now and there's yeah there's plenty did they think about it as being converted from judaism or reforming judaism i don't know but it's it's kind of scary how they're so against christians and christianity and you wonder i would say how is this going to happen because it's supposed to happen i would say with the original disciples I would be more than willing to bet that Jesus was able to open their eyes to the reality that what they were doing was a fulfillment of of their religion. Like, it was what their religion pointed to, and they knew that. Then when you start... More of a fulfillment than uh, conversion. Is that what you're right. saying? They, they, were, they, were, they now could look back on their old religious system, their old laws, the way that they used they to live, to see and that. see that all of it pointed to Christ and that they were walking the true faith, what true faith looked like. Now, what you do see is when you get into the book of Acts, you're going to start running into the world being flipped on its head because now what's happening is when uh, Simon, when Andrew brought the, uh, the Greeks to Jesus, and said, sirs, we should see Jesus. And Jesus said, now is not the time. But when he knocked Paul off of his horse, what did he say? Now is the time. Now the story is going to be opened up not only to my people Israel, but the, the world, the whole world. And so what you saw happening then was you saw the Jewish Christians, the, the, or the Neo-Galatian, if you will, the, the Judaizers, the ones that said, okay, that's fine that you got Christ, but you got to yoke him in back into Moses. Mm-hmm. And you, what you saw in the book of Acts is you see this, this shaking up of having to let go of the physical things for the spiritual realities that they, they pointed to. And that happened between the nation of Israel and the world, and it also happens within us too. Like, we have to start realizing that some of the things that we hold on to physically have greater spiritual realities that they point to. And so it's an individual thing, Mm -hmm. but I think you can see it in the scriptures as you read through the the New Testament letter. As you get through Acts and then you start seeing Paul and Peter and them writing to the church at large, (laughs) you can see where they're letting go of those things. So I think the original, I would say that the original disciples 
were seeing, because they hung around the temple even after Jesus left, like they were seeing how their old religious system actually pointed to who Jesus was. He opened their eyes and took the veil of Moses off so they could see it. Didn't Jesus call the Jews pearls and he called us swine? The Gentiles are swine. I'm not going to cast my pearls before the swine. Uh, The swine would have been people that are unbelievers. Swine, uh, to a Jewish person, swine is a filthy animal, an unclean animal. So the point he would have been making is, is don't throw your pearls to the, to the unclean, like to the to the wicked, okay. to the people who care about it. Yeah, the people that don't care, because a hog don't care about a pearl. No, he'll he'll root his nose right around it and keep on eating whatever it was. Right. What do you think? Do you think a Gamaliel convert? Paul's teacher. I'm just thinking I, I about, don't know. I'm just thinking about Acts five, where he defended the apostles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually protected them. Well, he, 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 what he said was, he said, if, if this is a god, you're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop it yeah. anyway. I, I don't know. I always I, wondered about that. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to. Maybe we'll see him in heaven one day. No, I mean, I would imagine that Paul probably had an impact on a lot of his old school. I would think friends. that's what I was thinking too. Yeah. That combined with that. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. We're playing for Josh King. Josh King. Yes. Okay. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us together. We thank you that we can rest in you and what your son Jesus has done for us. My prayer is that as we continue to study your word, that you will help us to understand it more and more. Um, each and every one of us in this room have uh, represent needs and desires and hopes and, and fears and, and all kind of things that we need help with from you. And we especially want to pray for uh, this man, Josh King, who has uh, gone missing. Um, he's been missing for 15 days. And, Lord, I just pray that um, if he be okay, that you would help him to, to find his way home uh, and be with his family now in their turmoil and their stress and uh, please help him to be found. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.